Well, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Kevin Dunn. I am the Events and Public Outreach Coordinator here at IWP. I'm going to give very brief remarks and then throw it over to our distinguished panel of experts today who will be speaking about a lecture, a topic rather, entitled The Case for a New Approach to Europe. For those of you who are new to IWP, we are a graduate school which teaches uh, statecraft and foreign affairs across a broad spectrum of national power. If you have any questions about our institution or school, I can uh, most certainly direct you to people on the other side of our building who would know a little bit more about that. This is our second event. Uh, which is co-sponsored by the FPI Center for Military and Diplomatic History. I'd like to extend again a special welcome to them for coming back a second time and um, being so kind as to share the floor with us. Uh, today's event logistically will be on the record and will be recorded. For those of you who would like to view a video of it afterwards, you may do so on our YouTube page, IWP. Um, Institute of World Politics, and likewise on our iTunes, which is you can find it at the IWP. So I'd like to introduce both our speaker and moderator, and then I will hand it over to them for the discussion. Our speaker today is Dr. Ted Roman. He is a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Sir, thank you for attending. And likewise with our moderator, Dr. Douglas Struzan, professor at Marine Corps University, as well as one of our own here at the Institute of World Politics. Uh, with that being said, for those of you who have not already done so, feel free to help yourself to some food in the back room, and we will commence. Thank you, gentlemen, for coming here today, and thank you for attending. Well, thank you, uh, John. Uh, with uh, any uh, further ado, uh, I will turn the topic over to uh, the table over to Ted, uh, and reserve whatever I have to say for afterwards, <laughs> except for the mandatory disclaimer that nothing that I say represents the views of Marine Corps University or any other agency of the U.S. government. Perhaps I should say the same thing about the Heritage Foundation, but it's not normally necessary. Uh, thanks very much to FBI, uh, to IWP, uh, to the Center for Military and Diplomatic History, uh, to my friend Dr. Mark Moyer, who unfortunately couldn't be here today. Appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. I think I want to start off by just saying very bluntly that I think the core problem that the United States has with its policy in Europe is that it has forgotten that it needs to have a policy in Europe, a policy that is controlled by the United States, that is directed for the purposes of benefiting American interests, which will, will by the way, benefit other people as well, but which is centrally governed and directed by the United States, not outsourced to other entities. Now in order to explain that theory, I want to go back to really to the 1930s and do a quick review of U.S. policy towards Europe from the 1930s, the 1940s, through the Cold War, look at where I think we went wrong, and then talk a little bit at the very end about what I think we need to do. So let me go back to uh, the 1930s and, and really uh, the immediate post-World War II era. When the U.S. looked at Europe immediately after World War II, first of all, you have to remember a lot of people thought that the United States was not going to remain a European power. We had the experience of World War I, where we had remained engaged economically uh, and culturally, but we had not remained engaged in a security sense. American forces had left Europe after World War I, 
And the thought was, among pretty much everyone, we would do the same thing after World War II. Well, when you got to 1946, 47, 48, uh, Americans, uh, preeminently, of course, the Truman administration, uh, looked at Europe and they saw two really threatening developments, and they were partly related to each other. One was to the security of Europe from the European periphery. Uh, centrally, of course, this is the Soviet Union, immediately after World War II. But they also feared that Europe, Western Europe, really, was under threat internally uh, from the potential of a slide into neutralism, it might be a slide into communism, it could be a return of fascism, it could be some other form of political extremism. But that in any case, these two threats interacted with each other. A European fear of external attack from the Soviet Union tended to incentivize them to want to move towards some sort of neutralism or some sort of extremist ideology either to ward off the external threat or to sign up with it. So Americans then looked back to the 1930s and tried to figure out, okay, we have a problem potentially with the rise of neutralism or political extremism in Europe. We've seen this problem before. It's the Nazis and, and the Italian fascists, of course. So what was the explanation for that when it happened? Well, Americans already had an explanation for that. It was the Great Depression. And that's a pretty good, a pretty good explanation, because if you go back to the 20s, the Nazis are a very, very minor German political party. They don't really take off in the German public realm until the Great Depression. So already after World War II, Americans have a pretty ready-made diagnosis that the thing that democracies can't stand is really terrible economic performance. If you want to reduce this to a slogan, bad economics makes bad politics. So the American answer after World War II to remedy this problem in European politics is to focus in large part on European prosperity. So there are relatively short things like ERP, the Marshall Plan. There are much bigger and longer running institutions that don't, some of them don't last very long like Bretton Woods. Some of them in very modified form, IMF, the World Bank, initially the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, are all part of the same diagnosis, that if you want to fix European politics, you have to fix European economics. Then you have a chance of getting the politics right. Now, it's not just economics. Uh, a little bit after this sort of core economic diagnosis is arrived at, the United States also realizes that it needs to make a security commitment, NATO, to Western Europe, because not precisely because we fear an immediate all-out Soviet attack, although that is a possibility. What the Truman administration is much more concerned about is the possibility that without an American security commitment, Europe will, will lose so much political confidence that it will collapse either politically, economically, or both. So we should never make the mistake of thinking of NATO as just about beating the Soviets when they attack. It was, of course, about deterring the Soviets, but it was much more about propping up the European sense of self-confidence to allow the economic measures that the United States was taking time to really take hold so that European political systems and economic systems could get restarted. Now, the United States also, in the course of this, realized that it had to start 
trying to rebuild what you might call European state self-confidence. So the United States also spends a lot of time immediately after World War II trying to get the basic state apparatuses of the Western European states up and running in a, a reasonably competent and effective sort of way, trying to sort of revivify the European state system under the argument that if you don't have some measure of competence and pride in the performance of the Italian government or the French government or the West German government, that again, you're risking an internal collapse. And that, that might lead to fascism or Nazism, it might lead to communism, or it might lead to a, a Soviet invasion. Uh, those are all possibilities. And then there's one final element to this American diagnosis, which it should be apparent right now it's fairly sophisticated. Uh, in the late Truman, early Eisenhower years, the United States begins to back measures towards European integration. Initially, these are things like the OEC, uh, later the OECD. Uh, a little bit later on in the Eisenhower administration, you get things like the European Payments Union, now mostly blessedly forgotten. And then a little bit later on, even than that, you get the European coal and steel community, uh, in some ways the, the very distant forerunner of today's European Union. And the United States backs these things for, re for the same reasons that it backs all the other measures that I've already talked about. Uh, it's a way partly to try to build up a sense of European cohesiveness and self-confidence. It's also rapidly becoming a way to try to get the Europeans to spend a little bit more and collaborate a little bit more on defense so that we can spend a little bit less. This may sound familiar to anyone who read Secretary Mattis' remarks uh, uh, yesterday. Uh, this theme has not gone away. Now, some administrations emphasize some aspects of this strategy and some administrations emphasize others a little bit more. Uh, the Eisenhower administration is very, very enthusiastic on European integration because Eisenhower really sincerely believes that the United States should withdraw from Europe and needs to withdraw from Europe. He recognizes that can't be done without a really substantial step up in European military contributions. Someone like President Kennedy swings a little bit the other way. Uh, he's much more concerned to get European spending up not so the U.S. can get out, but so that the U.S. presence in Europe can be sustained through the American public. This is a, it's a strategic concern, but it's also an American public opinion concern. But throughout the Cold War, the United States supports measures of European integration largely for what I would call policy reasons. This is not a religious faith. It's based on a very clear argument that the purposes of European integration are either to allow us to reduce our defense spending in Europe so we can focus other places, or to sustain what we've got. Those sound like contradictory things, but in practice they end up meeting more or less in the center. You end up with a serious American commitment to Europe, but not a total American commitment to Europe. It's never the only place that we focus on militarily. So let me fast forward now, obviously very rapidly, to post-1989 and think about how this picture I've just painted has changed. Right after 1989, the presumption was that Europe was now reliably stable and peaceful. We'd won the Cold War. 
the U.S. Never, did not abandon its old idea of wanting to play a lesser role in European security crises. But all of a sudden, we believed we had the opportunity to do less because the Cold War was over. So the United States did a couple of things. First, it radically, over the course of several decades, downsized its European military, down by about 90%. Now, I'm not saying that some reductions were not warranted. Clearly, they were. But 90% is a lot. And that reflected the basic American belief that we had won. The problem was over. And as you looked around the European periphery in 1989, 1990, 91, you did have a lot of reasons for optimism. Yes, the Balkan Wars. Uh, that is a very important exception to which I'll come to shortly. But in the early 90s, you could look at Russia, and you could be somewhat optimistic that things were going the right direction. You could look at Turkey. And you could see Turkish-EU accession talks that, that, you know, seemed to be headed in the right direction. There was an Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Uh, you know, did it generate the results that we hoped? Well, no, but it was there. Uh, okay, admittedly, Egypt was in an autocratic deep freeze, but it wasn't really affecting Europe in any clear way. The only really exciting thing happening on the European periphery was a civil war in Algeria. So you could look around the, the European periphery and you could be pretty optimistic. Well, how do things look today? Uh, as we look around the European periphery, are we optimistic or pessimistic today? Well, I'm not optimistic about Russia. Uh, I see no plausible reason to be optimistic about Russia. Uh, Turkey uh, will have a referendum in about six weeks to decide if it wants to become an essentially absolute dictatorship. Uh, there is no uh, Israeli-Palestinian peace, peace process, and such a process would generate very little. Uh, Egypt is entering a new autocratic deep freeze, but with significant domestic instability. Libya is pretty close to a disaster. The only place where things are going moderately well is Morocco, and that's really not compensation for how poorly everything else has gone around the European periphery. So, we were wrong in our assumption that the European periphery was nice and stable after 1989. It turned out it went the other way. We were also wrong, unfortunately, in our belief that we could take a back seat on European security crises, and we tried repeatedly. I mentioned the Balkan Wars earlier. Initially, under the Bush administration, uh, and even under the Clinton administration, the U.S. really tried to have a hands-off policy on the Balkan Wars, and to turn the responsibility for handling the Balkan crises over to Europe. This was the hour of Europe. Well, it turned out the hour of Europe never arrived, and eventually the United States had to intervene twice uh, to end various Balkan Wars. Libya, uh, more recently. Uh, again, we tried to be hands-off in this. I, President Obama, I believe, sincerely did not want to get involved in Libya, and was pulled in by the British and the French. Now, he was remarkably ungracious about that, but the fact remains that that was another crisis that we tried to take a hands-off approach on, only to get pulled in by the realization that the Europeans simply couldn't do it on their own. Uh, the refugee crisis. Can anyone uh, really explain what uh, the American policy is on the refugees? Well, we really don't have one. Uh, it's been a long time since we've had one. That's another, that's a huge European security crisis that we have simply 
been hands-off on. We have not really engaged with it. Ukraine. We tried to pass Ukraine and the management of Ukraine's transition from being a post-Soviet Russian satellite state into association with the European Union. We tried to pass that off to the Europeans. And I am not entirely blaming the Europeans for this one, obviously. But the net result was uh, another serious European security crisis, which began to some measure because we were just never really seriously involved. So all of these ideas that we had in the post-Cold War era about our ability to pass the security responsibilities off to other actors, the stability of the European periphery, all of these things turned out to be delusions. Now, one response to this uh, has been a very traditional American response to try to press the Europeans to spend more on defense. You will have read Secretary Mattis' remarks yesterday. Well, European defense spending is indeed an embarrassment. Uh, but unfortunately, it is not clear to me that there are any plausible measures, uh, either by hectoring or by withdrawing further American forces, to make it increase. I would just, there are a lot of very distinguished people who argue that we are subsidizing European defense. And if only we withdrew our forces, the Europeans would be compelled to spend more. We've already withdrawn 90%, right? We've conducted a 20-year experiment on this theory that we can make the Europeans spend more by spending less ourselves. As a matter of practice, when we spend less, they spend less too. So I just regard this theory as, as having been tested and as being false. The problem, I'm afraid, is much deeper. It's a problem of threat perception and of motivated threat perception that the Europeans are highly motivated not to perceive threats that require a military response because that would re require them to spend money they do not wish to spend and to undertake actions they do not wish to undertake. So I am skeptical whether Secretary Mattis will achieve results that Secretary Gates didn't achieve and lots of other American defense secretaries have failed to achieve. So that's the security challenge. How about the political challenge? Well, the United States, after 1989, increasingly began to hand its security responsibilities off in Europe to the political entity we now know as the European Union which has rapidly become a kind of cure-all answer for European difficulties. Is there low growth? Well, the answer is more European integration. Uh, is there a problem with border control? Well, the answer is more European integration. Are European nations' defense spending plans not sufficiently coordinated? The answer is the European Union. All of these things end up getting the same answer. Uh, I would argue that this is nonsense. Uh, so many disparate problems cannot have the same answer. This isn't thinking, this is intellectual laziness. The core problem with relying on the European Union is that an integrating Europe has not fulfilled the vision that either Eisenhower or Kennedy had for it. Both of them hoped that you would get a militarily strong European pillar. Both of them hoped that you would get a European pillar that was parallel to the United States within NATO, so that Europe would be, in a way, separate but equal and aligned. Well, it's quite clear that the European pillar is not the same width as the American one. It is fairly stunted. 
And it's also increasingly clear that the European pillar is somewhat tilted. It does not align reliably with American policy. Now, you might say that it shouldn't align reliably with American policy, but that was the basis that the United States conducted its European policy on, that it was going to align. I was very struck by a comment by EU President Donald Tusk made about two weeks ago, reported in the, in the Times of London, uh, speaking of the European Union, and I'll just read it to you. It must be made crystal clear that the disintegration of the EU will not lead to the restoration of some mythical full sovereignty of its member states, but to their real and factual dependence on the great powers, the United States, Russia, and China. Only together can we be fully independent. So there you have the president of the European Union saying, first of all, classing the United States with Russia and China, and secondly, saying that the explicit goal of the European Union is to be fully independent from the United States. Well, it's very hard to fit that understanding of the direction of European Union policy with the traditional American understanding that we're going to be two pillars closely aligned, parallel, upholding NATO together. Those are simply different visions. Now, unfortunately, uh, the European response to these security crises over the last few years has been, well, they've ranged from, what, feeble uh, in Ukraine, uh, the Balkan Wars in Georgia, to delayed verging on deceptive, uh, the Turkish accession <laughs> negotiations to the EU, which in my view were never serious, to biased, uh, Europe's interventions uh, with, is with Israel and the Palestinians, to non-existent, Syria, where Europe has really done very little, to spasmodically interventionist, Libya. In short, the European Union and European powers have really failed to play almost any serious role in addressing the security challenges on their own periphery. What they have done is focused on building up the European Union. Pre-1989, the EU was restrained by Cold War imperatives. You really, you couldn't do too much to build up the EU because you needed people's national loyalties to get them into the army to fight off the Russians, to put it really bluntly. Post-1989, that restraint was removed, and the European Union's pace of integration has accelerated very radically since 1989. It has a new vision, as Donald Tusk uh, comments when he compares the United States to Russia and China. It is a fundamentally pacific vision. It is a vision of not opposition to the United States, but disalignment with it. And it is an, a vision of world order which is profoundly reluctant to perceive security threats because they pose all sorts of unanswerable challenges for European institutions. The net result of all of this is that the European Union doesn't encourage the nations of the EU to look outwards. Instead, it preoccupies them with elaborating and resolving their internal governance structures. Uh, as in the case of the Syrian refugees, it creates lots of arguments about burden sharing at home, but it doesn't create any desire or ability to share a burden abroad. In practice, the European Union has ended up promoting not European globalism, but European disengagement, even from its periphery, which as I've noted already, the management with, of which has been relentlessly returned to the United States belatedly and unwillingly, both on their part and on ours. 
This is the modern version of neutralism. We were worried about this for Western Europe in the late 1940s, and we're seeing again a kind of European neutralism today. It's the neutralism of a, a near fixation on internal European governance and a lack of serious interest and attention given to European security crises in the near abroad, to use the Russian term. So where are we on U.S. policy towards Europe? Well, run through the big areas, security, economics, and politics. Security. The periphery of Europe is very bad. Uh, it, we are approaching a, a situation where we're not quite in 1945, but where there are a lot of very threatening things on the European periphery. We have greatly diminished U.S. forces in Europe. European forces are weak. I have to credit Poland and the Baltic Republics for increasing their defense spending. But frankly, without a really substantial German plus-up, Baltic increases are insufficient. Uh, the European borders are uncontrolled. There have been repeated over 25 years now of experience of European failures to address core security challenges on the borders of Europe. There are persistent EU mutterings about creating a European army, which would further undermine an already badly degraded NATO. And, of course, there is U.S. resentment at low European defense spending. That is not a terribly attractive picture on the security front. Economics. The central aim of the European Union right now is to sustain the Euro. And the United States has strongly backed in this. Remember the U.S. discovery after or during World War II? Bad economics makes bad politics. The Euro has to work in its current structure by creating large-scale, either flat growth, recessions, or depressions in countries with relatively low productivity. Greece. Italy has not seen economic growth in 20 years. Right? They've been, Greece's, Greece's depression is deeper and longer than the American Great Depression. The Euro has, done, has been a tremendous success for Germany, no question. But for lots of other places in Europe, it has produced and it will continue to produce very low growth or worse. And the American experience from the 30s and 40s indicates this will produce bad politics. Well, what do you see when you look at Europe today? I see a lot of political developments that make me profoundly uneasy. Now, they are not caused only by low growth, but low or zero or negative growth is an enormous contribution to the development of bad politics because it, in, it almost inevitably encourages the rise of parties that end up scapegoating someone for how poorly their nation is doing. So I view the euro as an enormous cause, though not the only cause, for the political maladies of Europe right now. Uh, what are the other political problems? Uh, first, there is immigration, migration, or, and refugees, and they're technically a little bit different, but you can put them all together. Uh, together with low European growth, this is the other thing that is driving negative developments in European politics right now. Uh, second, um, 
you see uh, the near collapse of many mainstream political parties in Europe. Uh, the Greek socialists no longer have a seat in the Greek assembly. It's astonishing. Um, the leading Italian political party is led by an out-and-out -out comedian. The mainstream political parties in Spain uh, are, frankly, almost destroyed. The FN is quite likely to come first, I don't think to win, probably, but quite likely to come first in the first round of the French elections. Even Germany, which has long seemed the most resistant to the rise of, of you know, a party outside the, the two and a half mainstream parties, has AFD now. And you could go on uh, through a lot of other European nations. So, in, and in some cases, these parties, FAN I'm thinking of in particular, but others undoubtedly, are, in my view, saying extremely undesirable things. Well, what ties all of this together? What ties all of these political developments together is that all of the mainstream European parties have for 25 years supported all of the things that have now gone wrong. They have all supported the euro, centrally. They have all supported increasing measures of European integration in spite of the fact that most European referenda that were held rejected those measures. But they went ahead and did many now. They have not been able uh, to stand up for the imposition of European border controls. And they have been enthusiastic backers of high levels of intra-European migration, which in some ways is just as controversial. Certainly in the UK, which is the country I know the best, the Brexit vote was not driven by concerns about Syria, uh, concerns about Poland. Uh, were much more salient, although certainly not the only concern. So the result of all of this is that the mainstream European political parties are also being destroyed. What a disaster. So what should we do? First, uh, we are a power in Europe. We have always been a power in Europe for security reasons. Right? We, have all, we have lots of other interests there, but the core American commitment to Europe after 1945 was about security, because we just sent a big American army over there for the second time in 20 years, and we didn't want to do it a third time. So the core problem is security. The core security instrument has to be NATO. For all of its deficiencies, nothing else better is going to be found. Any instrument that detracts from NATO, especially an EU instrument, does a serious amount of damage to American security concerns, European security concerns, and the reliability of the American commitment to Europe, which I take very seriously. Secondly, we need to remember the lesson that we learned as a result of World War II. Bad economics makes bad politics. Stop supporting things that produce low growth recessions or depressions in European countries. That means the euro has to go. It might be okay for a eurozone centered on Germany with a few surrounding nations. That is a plausible eurozone. But the eurozone as currently constructed can only work by increasingly large German transfers of wealth to relatively low productivity, generally Mediterranean economies. The Germans will never get that money back. 
and it does nothing more than keep the Mediterranean economies on life support. It produces no growth. That is not a sustainable picture. And then third, and finally, we need to end the outsourcing of U.S. policy in Europe to the European Union. We have tried this for 25 years. We have tried giving Europe security, letting them take the lead in security responsibilities. It has not worked. That security commitment then leads on into all the other areas that the U.S. is concerned about, the Euro most preeminently in European economies. And that is really where I started off, that unless we have a, U a U.S. policy in Europe which is predicated on the things that we care the most about and based on our understandings, which were correct after 1945, about the causes of bad trends in European politics, we will continue to outsource our interests in Europe to the defense of others, and the negative trends in Europe will continue because they are being driven by precisely the same negative trends that we worked so hard to arrest and turn around after 1945. So what's the new policy we need in Europe? It's very simple. We need the old policy in Europe. We got it right after 1945. American policy after World War II was far-sighted and correct. It was philosophically quite sophisticated. It was politically and historically and economically well-informed, and it produced excellent results. We abandoned that policy after 1989, as did the Europeans, and the results since then have been increasingly poor. So my conclusion is that we need to return to the policy that worked. And I think it'll work again. Thanks very much. Well, thank you, Ted, for that clear and incisive um, presentation. I have a number of uh, thoughts of my own, but uh, I'm only going to mention one uh, before over to the audience for questions and discussion, and that is just that I always like to hear the name of Senator Arthur Vandenberg mentioned because of his crucial role in bringing the Republican Party into support for the Truman administration's commitment to Europe yeah. and essentially making uh, the Cold War a bipartisan rather than a partisan commitment. It's worth remembering that um, many of the most devoted anti-communists of the 40s and 50s distrusted the Republican Party because of its isolationist roots, which Senator Vandenberg uh, probably under the guidance of his nephew, General yeah. Hoyt Vandenberg, the second chief of staff of the U.S. Air, Air Force, uh, yeah. the role of overcoming that. So after trying to give Senator Vandenberg his due, I will try to give the audience your due. <laughs> and uh, so please stand and identify yourself. Sir. Uh, hi, um, uh, Pat Span. The um, seems like, you know, of course, our, our um, international relations elites don't seem to have a sense of history. I sense that we were, we were going back to um, the nation state of the you know, 18th, 19th century, especially in Europe, I mean, you have to, to me, you know, the whole idea of NATO, because we had an enemy 
Who's the enemy now? Russia? Russia's just another nation-state returning back to the way it was in the 1800s. I mean, the Europeans, you know, they've been spoiled. I tend to agree that they've been spoiled by uh, us providing security for them. I mean, the, um, just reading in the paper today about uh, you know, all the, all the um, people, so-called refugees coming across from Libya, well, they're, they're West Africans. I've spent some time in West Africa. They're, they're, they're not uh, Middle Eastern uh, refugees. They're West Africans. They're economic. A lot of them are economic migrants. I, I mean, I was in Italy last year, and I was amazed at all the West Africans uh, trying to sell me uh, selfie sticks in uh, Florence. But it, it seemed like I don't. I just don't let, let Europeans do in their own juices. What is the? Who is our enemy? It's not Russia. It, it may Russia may be the enemy. Of, what? You know, we recycle the Russians and Germans. You know, they played they played the game several times in the last two hundred years. I just don't see uh, what our role is. I mean, I, I never can understand our role in uh, Kosovo, for God's sakes. I mean, the uh, between the just between the Serbs and the Albanians. I mean, give me a break. It's just we just muck around, and it's, we have no interest. It's, it's just not our interest. And I just don't see it. Who's who's the enemy for NATO right now? Well, it, okay, you're, you're asking a couple of sort of related questions. Um, first, so why are, why, are we, why are we helping the Europeans? Um, one answer to that is that we, the United States, are very lucky. Uh, we have Canada and Mexico as neighbors. And frankly, geopolitically, we could hardly have done any better. Uh, from a random selection. Yes, I mean, there are difficulties, obviously, but realistically, those are pretty good places to have as neighbors. Uh, Europe has Russia, um, a bunch of dictators, and a great big pile of radical Islamists. Now, they haven't always had precisely those sets, but Russia has always been there. Uh, European, Europe is un geopolitically unlucky and the United States is geopolitically lucky. It is therefore inevitable that if one of us is going to help the other, it's going to be us helping them. Because we have a freedom of action that because of a bad geographical hand, which is never going to change, they don't have. So that's reason number one. Reason number two is that we are the top of the heap in the international system. And no one would be hurt more by a radical change in world order than us. Even if others suffered significant losses, our losses proportionately would be higher because we have more to lose. We are in the position of Britain before 1914. Hey, they won World War I, but it, it felt and it feels kind of like a loss. Even though the Russians and the Germans in every material, I mean, heck, the Russians got communism out of it, right? Obviously, they suffered more. But it still feels like a loss for Britain because they were at the top when they started. We are profoundly incentivized to try to keep and build spaces in the world that also want the world to remain more or less as it is. Now, I can think of, of you know, a number of things I would like to change. Obviously, I'm sure we all can. Uh, but that does not, we, we still want more and more of the world to be run by places that don't want radical change. 
And Europe is the single biggest cluster of states that don't really want radical change. Therefore, it is in our long-run interest to support them because that gives a gravity to the international pyramid that we happen to sit on top of, and I, for one, would like to stay there. Third, and these are more mundane considerations, we have tried the policy of leaving Europe alone before, and it has not worked to best advantage, uh, certainly for the Europeans and, and I would argue, for us. Uh, so, am I forecasting a return of 1941 or 44? No, absolutely not. Uh, do I think that the economic and political position of, of the United States would be seriously weakened if, and this I think is somewhat more plausible, if Germany simply decided on a policy of neutralism? Yeah, I think that would be a bad thing. So, that's perhaps a lower level consideration, but a real one too. So, um, you know, there are always questions about every individual American involvement, Kosovo, etc., is the one that you raise. Um, we tried to give that to other people. Right? We spent most of the 1990s desperately trying to get the Europeans to solve their own problem. The reality is that they will not. And given that our interests in keeping Europe stable are much higher than our interests in keeping Central Africa stable, where millions of people have been killed, as opposed to you know, tens or hundreds of thousands uh, in the Balkans, uh, inevitably we are going, if the Europeans cannot handle it, to get pulled in. I wish they could, but I just see no evidence that they are going to develop the technical ability or what is really much more important, the willingness to handle these problems. So therefore, do I, do I expect to be happy about this? No, I, I really do not. Um, but, you know, everyone here knows Spider-Man's motto, right? With great power comes great responsibility. Hey, if you don't want the responsibility, give up the power. I, I would add also that <coughs> important for us to remember how Russian the Soviet Union was, and that a Russian-dominated Western Europe would not be all that much less inimical to American interest than a Soviet-dominated Western Europe would have been, and that while Russia in the long run is experiencing disastrous Demographic, disastrous demographic decline that may make it more dangerous in the short run, meaning the next 30 years, yeah. than it would be otherwise. Yeah, completely agree with that. I mean, the, the core purpose of NATO right now is the same, pur the same purpose that NATO should always have had. This fantasy of out-of-area operations was a, a, a late 90s, early O's phase. The purpose of NATO is territorial defense of its member states. Or to, or to protect um, its member states from submitting to Russian blackmail. Yeah. Which, uh, which really goes back, again, to the, the core reason we set up, well, the British and we set up NATO after World War II. Now, as I said earlier, the problem is not that the Russians are going to attack, the problem is that the Europeans are going to fold. And, um, yeah. 
back in the uh, in the late eighties, before the Soviet <coughs> Union fell, there was the, 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 the many responsible observers were describing even the German attitude towards the Soviets as there is no Soviet threat, and we're buying it off. <laughs> and, well put. Uh, uh, and, and I think that what, what Ted has suggested is that without a more resolute American commitment to Europe, that that policy may, may once again be the policy of the Central European states. Yeah. Uh. <clears throat> Rebecca Jensen, I'm a visiting teacher at the Elliott School. So if you're an Anglophile, you know Yes Minister. Yes. There's a wonderful scene where Sir Humphrey says the real purpose of the EU is essentially to neuter continental nationalism. And I think you are arguing essentially that succeeded. So given the rise of extreme nationalism in many of the parties in Europe, what sort of equilibrium do you think is possible? And if it's possible, what can the US do to promote a balance point between this sort of bellicose hypernationalism or post-nationalist Henri, which I think is leading in an almost yeah. dangerous direction? If I remember yes, Minister correctly, he didn't quite say it was to neuter nationalism. He said it was to get the Germans readmitted to the human race. Um, that, I, I think is a slightly more accurate quotation. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was an excellent series. It's too bad that the supposed third series, Yes Commissioner, where uh, Hacker was going to be promoted up to be an EU commissioner and never got made. I, I think that would have been an awfully rewarding series. Are, 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 you, are you sure it, it isn't being acted out? Well, yeah, indeed. Well, yeah, well, there, it won't be acted out with the British because they're leaving. Uh, so Hacker, Hacker's equivalent will not get an EU commissioner job. Look, you're, at, you're asking a re I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. And the, the, to my mind, the, the core problem that you're getting at is that genuine liberalism uh, has always been relatively weak on the continent, weaker than it is in the UK or the United States. I don't mean liberalism as in progressivism. Uh, I mean liberalism as uh, the inalienable rights of every individual, etc., etc. Uh, if you don't have that as your sort of core ideological orientation, it's very hard to have a sense of nationalism and or patriotism. We could argue a lot about the valences of those words. Uh, but it's very hard to have a sense of national belonging which works in the way that 19th century liberal theorists of nationalism talked and wrote about. I mean, one, one great example of this is what is the U.S. diagnosis about the causes of World War I? I mean, you can go to Woodrow Wilson to find this. It's not too hard. European empires, right? So what is the U.S. response to World War I? The U.S. response isn't that we need less nationalism. The U.S. response is we need more nationalism, right? Break up the European empires, create a bunch of European states. So, you know, it, it shows how deeply sort of the American attitude towards liberal nationalism runs that our, our response, and I think, by the way, I mean, I, so many people have written such great works on World War I, but I basically think that's still the single best explanation, is the rivalry of pan-ethnic European empires, particularly in the Balkans. So, but if you don't have that as your ideological basis, what do you get absent that? You get the two alternatives that you described. You either get sort of nasty, 
ethnically very exclusive sort of narrow nationalism or you get sort of pan-European slush. Uh, you get the EU. There isn't sort of a really attractive middle path unless you've got a strong sense of liberal nationalism. And that raises the most fundamental question of all, which is, is there an alternative? Now, for places like Britain, there obviously is. That's why they're out. Uh, for France, there is, because the French tradition is different from the Anglo-American tradition, but there remains a very strong sense of Frenchness. Um, and a, a different tradition of liberalism, but still you know, an important one. The further you go east, the tougher it gets uh, to identify. Now, Baltics, um, Scandinavia, uh, good. Much more difficult when you get into core Central Europe. It's not that there are no liberal thinkers in this tradition. Um, there are some very distinguished ones. But is it deep enough? Is it strong enough? I don't know the answer to that. But what I do very much fear is that the more that you try to solve the problem of nasty, exclusive nationalism by going to pan-European slush, the more you end up reverting back to this direction. I think it's a self-feeding disease. And I hope there's a middle road, but I agree. It's a very serious question of political philosophy. I don't have an answer for it. Um, I'm reminded of an observation made, I've heard made by a French military officer, uh, about what's going on now in French schools uh, and the question of assimilating refugees. He said, how can we teach outsiders to be French if we are no longer proud of French heroes? Yeah. Uh, I think also that, 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 that as usual, Ted's remarks point to another extremely important distinction that we need to understand, which is the difference between the Anglo-American Enlightenment and its commitment to individual liberalism and the continental enlightenment, which was, went in a different direction. I would draw your attention to Gertrude Himmelfarb's Roads to Modernity on that issue, and, and if you, or if you you're really are into uh, more challenging books, uh, J.L. Talman's The Origins of Totalitarian Democracy. Uh, Ma'am? Yes, uh, Ruth Bevan, uh, Chile University, New York City. Uh, do you think the European Union should have remained with the six. Uh, there was talk after the fall of the Soviet Union that maybe Eastern Europe should have organized its own mm. equivalent organization. Would it have been different had the European Union stayed smaller? Has it become too large? Too big for its bridges, yeah. as it were. Uh, there, it's a really interesting question. There, There is a strong correlation that smaller units of government tend to be more effective. The United States is a great outlier in that regard. We're, we're much better run than you would think we would be given our size. But if you look around the world, it's generally small nations that seem to work the best. And you know anyone who's thought about you know, localism and direct democracy and being close to things you understand, there are probably some fairly coherent explanations for that. So. You know, that's one consideration that sort of inclines me in your direction. But of course, by 1989, the EU um, wasn't six. 
anymore. It had already expanded considerably at that point. And unfortunately, there's probably a lot to be said in theory for the alternative that you're proposing, but after 1989, the EU and NATO membership were, were not so much important because of sort of dull considerations about you know, what's the most effective size of government or is there going to be a euro in the future. They were symbols of the fact that Eastern Europe had broken free from Soviet control and were going to join the civilized world. And you can say all sorts of and I, I, things I suspect I have a lot of sympathy with about how it would have been desirable if there were Churchill style, really, because this was his idea, a number of small European confederations uh, instead of one great big one. Uh, if Churchill thought it, it's certainly worthy of serious consideration. But in practice, in 1989, that was not the alternative that showed that you had won the, you had won the Cold War. So I just don't think it was practical politics, however desirable it would have been. The, the, the difficulty that you get after 1989 is really twofold. First, it's the, it's the rapid increase in the speed and depth of integration in general, coupled with a willingness to override the negative results of European referenda when they are held, and secondly, the euro. We should all remember that the euro was not started because Europe had reached a political point where it needed the common currency. The euro was explicitly started because the EU recognized that Europe had not reached that point. And the purpose of the euro was to force everyone to be free. It was a way to achieve political ends by creating a monetary instrument, not the other way around. That was why Milton Friedman, among other reasons, argued in the late 1990s that it wasn't going to work. Uh, Professor Friedman said, you know, I'm simplifying, said, this is not an optimal currency area. And you're creating a currency in the acknowledged recognition that it is not an optimal currency area, trying to make it one. It's not going to work. He was correct. So, uh, in, the, in the back. Please, st please stand, stand up. up so we can read. Well, I mean, today, I mean, I, there, there is an initial and a, a name uh, that makes me rather distrustful, and it's V. Putin. Uh, I mean, that, that's the quick and obvious answer. Um, the, but the, and the reason that I find them distrust, not trustworthy is because President George W. Bush tried a Russia reset, not in precisely those words, but certainly tried. Uh, you may remember George W. Bush saying he looked into the soul of Vladimir Putin, to which John McCain memorably replied, yeah, I looked into his soul too, and I saw KGB. <laughs> so, um, so George W. Bush got totally taken to the cleaners uh, by this guy, completely fooled. Uh, Barack Obama came along uh, with Hillary Clinton in the Russia reset. You know what? They got fooled too. Um, this guy has taken two U.S. presidents and several secretaries of state who could not be more different politically, intellectually, and in every other way, and has, has fooled and tricked both of them.
That takes political skill of a very high order. But anyone here ever watched Futurama? You know, the old series, not, not the less funny new one. Um, there's this great line in one of the early shows where the professional intern, Amy Wong, says, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me 16 times or more, shame on me. Well, you know, we're, that's kind of where we are with Russia. Like how many times do we have to try to cut a deal with these guys only to get taken to the cleaners by them? Give it a break. Now, the really long-run question you ask is, is Russia fundamentally imperialist? The answer is yes, it is. Uh, the Russian understanding of Russia's place in the world for centuries has been an imperialist one. That they should dominate the states or the peoples, to put it more accurately frequently, who rest around them in much the same way that the Chinese view of the world is fundamentally imperialist. Now, there is, I would submit, very little that can be done about this. Uh, we are, we're actually quite an old country uh, in many senses, but these ideas are much older than we are. We do not have the ability to change them, and we should maturely accept that these are ideas about the places that other people have in the world which are beyond our power to change. That does not mean, however, we have to agree to them, submit to them, or certainly be fooled by them. So, I view the ending of the Cold War as the ending of one phase in a poker game. If you can never get up from the table, and you can't get up from the table in international politics, if you make a big win, take some money off the table. Bank something. Well, we had a big win in 1989, we banked something, it was called Eastern Europe. So the game continues. Uh, and right now, that means a policy not of aggression, uh, which I rarely recommend, but a policy of deterrence. And a policy of consistently imposing costs on Russia that make it clear that undesirable actions on their part will pay a strategic price, and desirable actions on their part will be rewarded fairly. Quid pro quo. But first they act desirably and then we reward, not the other way around. I entirely agree with Doug that Russia's long-run position is weak. Therefore, we can afford to be calm, to play from strength, to impose costs, and to deter. But if you want to be successful doing that, you have to do it consistently. You can't do it intermittently. Data. And with regard to you know, taking some benefits from 1989, you recall the big Brzezinski's observation that Russia with the Ukraine is a great power, Russia without the Ukraine is not. And I don't think that American policy towards events in the Crimea and the Ukraine took sufficient cognizance of that principle. Yeah. But, the, but your question was a, a, in some ways um, bibliographic. Uh, and to understand Russia, I would still direct you to the works of Richard Pipes yeah. and also to the wonderful Windows on Eurasia blog run by our IWP colleague, Professor Paul Goebel. Yeah. Um, to, uh, but, but with regard to, Put to Putin, yes, you look into Putin's soul and you see KGB. Russia is, is not as it is because of Putin. Putin is as he is because of Russia. 
Although he hasn't helped. No, well, I, <laughs> no, but 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 I, but I, but he, he is uh, he is he is in a. But let's say that he's the, in a tradition. The, 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 yes, the, the 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 career of being a secret policeman in Russia is a secure one for in most families. Yeah, national character. I've seen remember that in, in IR school classes. Yes, it, yeah. it, it used to be the argument. 20, 30 years ago, that that's that's a false thing to look at, but I think national character is a reality. And indeed. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm national character. I don't know what I tend to think of is not national character, but very long run and deep ideological or political ways of understanding the world. If you want to call that character, okay. Well, well um, as long as as long as the term doesn't imply. It's genetic. It's genetic. Uh, I mean, it's it's deep-rooted ideas that you imbibe without really understanding that you're imbibing. I mean, for example, the American view of the world is that is very stateocentric, right? We think that the rest of the world should be organized into states that look a little bit and act a little bit like us, not like speaking English or being mostly Christian or any of that kind of stuff, but that they should be organized state entities that are reliable and law-abiding that we can do business with. Look, I mean, I think that's a very commendable understanding of world organization. It just so happens lots of other people have different ideas. Uh, and, you know, we don't have to give up on our ideas, but it doesn't mean that we should assume that everyone else has them either. The, uh, the, United, the United States grew out of Europe after Europe had abandoned the idea of empire, and in the sense of Roman empire, not uh, not, not a great European empire. Yes, yeah. uh, but back. Yeah. Yes. Uh, just uh, the uh, I, I want to ask you about two or three long-term trends that, um, in a sense, uh, uh, challenge or put tension on the Eurocentric perspective that that you and the United States has had certainly since the the, the, the 1940s as the American population shifts away from a European uh, orientation. In 1945, probably 90% of the American population could trace its origins to Europe, and yes. many of them within their living memory yep. from Europe. Or certainly their parents and their grandparents. Right, and, and, and we, we know that within the near term, the majority of the American population is going to trace its origins to Africa, South America, Vietnam, China, every place else. That's, so that's a trend that's just there. Second trend is the shift in U.S. economic focus on Asia away from Europe. We've long since passed the point where our trade, trade, American trade with Asia is larger than its trade with Europe. So if you were addressing a room of uh, African Americans, South America, Mexican Americans, Vietnamese Americans, Chinese Americans, and trying to tell them why this whole Europe, why our destiny is intertwined with Europe, or if you were addressing a room full of technology business people whose sole focus, for, for whom Europe is a blip on the screen, yeah. about the same as Brazil or something like that, how would you tell them about the importance of our commitment, our financial commitment? To, to Europe, yeah. as you I mean, I, I don't know where, I mean, U.S. destiny, I mean, that, that's an awful, <laughs> I, okay. I'm, I'm going to write off, I mean, I'm going to disavow any efforts to decide the destiny of the United States, thank you very much. Um, okay, demographics and economics. I think 
in retrospect, I said this at the time, I think President Obama will be the first president in the post-World War II era of whom it can be said that Europe was not clearly the most important part of the world. But he will not be the last. Right? I mean, I, I don't, I think, I think we will probably never again have a president of whom it can clearly be said, as it could have been said for Eisenhower or Kennedy, uh, that Europe was the most important part of the world. And the Europeans know that and they resent it very deeply. And when diplomatic delegations come along, we, you would not believe how many questions we, we got, indeed in some respects are still getting about the Asia pivot. Uh, even if there wasn't a whole lot of reality behind the pivot, the mere fact that it, it was some sort of acknowledgement that Europe was no longer the center of the U.S. world view troubled people enormously. But frankly, unless we lose all contact with sanity and reality, uh, we're going to pay less attention to Europe, uh, primarily for economic reasons. And you know what? We should pay less attention to Europe. Uh, if ultimately geopolitical power is economic power delayed and mobilized, well, we'd be positively insane to keep on paying the same amount of attention to Europe that we did in 1945, self-evidently. The difficulty, I think, with the argument you make is that Asia is not a place in the same way that Europe is a place. Uh, look at the relationship between two very good allies, Japan and South Korea. Uh, yes, they are both in Asia, in sort of a sense of speaking. Is that a helpful thing? Uh, can we treat both of them as, oh, you're just both in Asia, you know, you're all the same. You know, you Europeans, you're all the same. You know, you Asians, you know, Japanese, you know, that's not something that you would say to the Japanese and the South Koreans. Never mind the North Koreans, never mind the Philippines, never mind India, which, you know, has a view of the world which is distinctly its own and doesn't have a lot in common with Japan's. So, you know, it's true that there are a lot of, you know, as my, my Indian in-laws would point out, that there are a lot of places in the world outside Europe but for better or for worse, we have since 1945 treated Western Europe, and then since 1989, Western Eastern Europe, as more or less a group. Now, there are all sorts of, you know, there are all sorts of valences in that, but it is not a plausible policy, and I think it never will be a plausible policy, for us to treat all of Asia, however defined, as a single group. Because it's too big, too complicated, too many languages, too much history, and frankly, Europe had the Second World War that, you know, leveled without removing, but leveled some of the differences. Asia's had a lot of wars, but it's not had the kind of World War II experience that I think made it possible in the modern world to talk about them as a group. So how would I, I defend U.S. interests in Europe to a group of people who didn't descend from Europe? The same way I would defend U.S. interests in Asia to a group of people who had descendants from Europe. They're both very important. You know, we're not going to choose. We cannot emphasize Europe, the exclusion of Asia, if that's a, you know, a meaningful unit. And we certainly can't emphasize Asia to the exclusion of Europe. Uh, economically and for a whole bunch of other reasons, culturally, socially, etc. They're both very important places. And you know what? They have been for quite a while. The weights are shifting. 
but it's going to be a very long time before we can simply write off Europe as a place of no account. We're, we're decades and decades and decades and decades away from being able to do that if we ever reach that point, which I don't think we will. So, if you're a, great, if you're a superpower, you're going to have interests in lots of places, you'll be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. I, I would simply add that if we're going to, to um, base American foreign policy on our, on our ancestry, that ancestry had better be the ancestry that we adopt by becoming Americans, that is, that of the founders. Yeah. Um, other questions from the floor? I just wanted to go back to uh, Russia and the Ukraine. How did you feel about the European Union's attempt to include the Ukraine in the EU? Was that well, it was, it was of course, an, an agreement of trade and association. It wasn't, you know, full EU right. membership. I mean, I think even the most optimistic person, if that agreement had gone through when it was supposed to have gone through, would have said that Ukraine was a number of years away from even being considered for full EU membership. Twenty years might, you know, seem like a beginning reasonable number to me, maybe. But, look, why did the Russians not like? What, what are the Russians not like? Uh, we should remember that, that latest Russian aggressions didn't begin in Ukraine, right? And they didn't begin in Georgia. Vladimir Putin's public career begins with the second war in Chechnya, right? And that remains, by the way, the only peoples uh, that Russia have actually absorbed. They took chunks of Georgia. They took chunks of Ukraine. Chechnya, they, they've taken the whole thing and, you know, eradicated the city of Grozny from the map in the course of doing so. So, all of these things have a bit of a trend. Um, why was the second war in Chechnya fought? To get Vladimir Putin elected. That's, because I mean, the Russians lost the first round, so they started the second war to raise his popularity. Uh, Georgia. Why was Georgia attacked in 2008? Because Georgia was in the... the was making a move, maybe even had made a move by that point, to be decisively aligned with the West and the United States. Is Georgia a military threat to Russia? <laughs> Please. I mean, the mere idea is farcical. Um, but they are a threat in one sense. They were a democratic Western-aligned state on Russian borders. Ukraine was attacked at, and subverted at precisely the moment that it looked like it was about to make a, a choice. Uh, you know, uh, uh, now with Ukrainian politics, it's hard to know how the choice would have played out in later years. But it looked—it looked like it was going to be a, a sort of a decisive choice. It was immediately assaulted. So, what does the Vladimir Putin regime not want? It doesn't want independent Western-aligned states on its borders, not because they are military threats, but because they might give the Russian people ideas about getting rid of Vladimir Putin. That's the problem. So many of these foreign adventures are about Russian domestic politics making the regime look strong and preventing the emergence on the, in the new Russian near abroad of any alternative model that might suggest that Russia could do a little better than what it's currently doing right now. But wasn't the European move there for 
was it aggressive toward Russia? Only, only if you, only if you presume that that Russia's that Russia has the inherent right to allow other people not to be free. In that case, yes, it was. Uh, but I decline to admit that they have such a right. Uh, why it is not a threat to Russia if Ukraine joins the West, it is very much a threat to the existing Russian regime if they do. Was, it was the European move stupid? It was stupid to do something that was going to be perceived by the Russians, or at least the regime, as threatening to the regime without taking serious measures in advance to deter it. If you want to get, there's a, everyone knows Winston Churchill's great speech on the Munich crisis, uh, but one of his friends, uh, British statesman then Leo Amory, gives an almost, almost as great speech right before, where he says, if you're going to interest yourself in Czechoslovakia, be interested. If you are not going to be interested, disinterest yourself. But don't try to do both. Right? That's the worst of all worlds. If you're going to be interested in Ukraine, you better make it a core commitment. If you're not going to make it a core commitment, you shouldn't make it a commitment at all. So I don't fault, I certainly do not fault the desire of the Ukrainians to want to move to the West. I absolutely decline to admit that Russia has the right to control what they do. Uh, I have, I'm obviously a deep Euroskeptic, but I don't really fault the EU except in so far as they didn't deter. But it is outside the nature of the EU to, to deter. Yeah, I mean, the, the, EU, the EU understanding of this is that the problems in the near abroad, so-called, can be settled by incorporating these places gradually into the European Union. That is the security strategy. Look, it worked great with, you know, then Czechoslovakia. Uh, it worked fantastically with Poland. But you are now budding up as the European Union into places that cannot be plausibly exactly. dealt with exactly. in that strategy. Exactly. Are they going to take the Israelis and the Palestinians in? I think not. Uh, they can take Russia in? Oh, I think not. They can tur take Turkey in? Well, they lied about it for years, but finally a European who genuinely wanted Turkish accession. And it was all prevarications. So that strategy, which worked okay, provided you were dealing with places that were had some participation in a European liberal tradition, it worked. But you're now butting up on parts of the world that are not in that tradition. And you know what? If I were Turkish, I wouldn't want to be in the EU. I also, um, I also wouldn't want the tur current Turkish government, but I wouldn't want to be in the European Union. You know, you're Turkey. You're, you're a big deal on your own. You don't need to be part of the European Union. Uh, one might argue that, that the European Union's approach to Turkey has the worst of all possible worlds because it involved the weakening of European secularism and uh, of a Turkish secularism in order to meet uh, EU political expectations. Yeah, I mean, again, if you want to get involved, get involved. If you don't want to get involved, you know, don't string people along with a bunch of phony promises. Good. Um, Charles Muir, uh, does our response to Russian action in Crimea, um, sanctions and rallying the Europeans in a more or less unified response, uh, meet the standard you set of imposing costs for benefits? No, it's pathetically weak, um, hopelessly weak. Uh, I'm not anti-sanctions, but 
it, it's just, I mean, so with, with Crimea and then with Ukraine, Donbass, you had, for the first time in post-1945 Europe, an actual territorial force of a war and change of borders. And if any nation is going to be is going to be centrally responsible for leading a European response to this, it's got to be Germany, right? I mean, they're the biggest. They're centrally located. They, they are at the core of the EU. I mean, it's got to be Germany, um, and they're they're closer too. So the German response to this was to whine endlessly and then slap on a very few limited sanctions in response to an, a land war in Europe, their response was limited sanctions on Russia. How pathetic is that? That after everything that happened in World War II and all of these arguments about Europe being you know, a land of peace and stability, that when you have an actual security crisis, the single most important member of the European Union takes as their response to this the reluctant imposition, with great domestic political difficulty, of a very limited set of sanctions. If you want any proof that there will never be a serious European security response to an actual crisis, there it is. So what, would, what do I think we should have done? First, we should bear in mind that just because something happens in one part of the world doesn't mean that we have to respond, that we have to parallel that response in that part of the world. Uh, there are lots of ways to impose costs. And if you want to go towards symmetric deterrence, fine. But we should also look a lot of asymmetric. In other words, looking at doing things in other areas, in other realms of policy. So there's a huge area there, and presuming symmetrical behavior tends to reduce our ability to respond. So, but in my view, uh, we should have sent sophisticated U.S. anti-tank missile systems. We should have sent the special forces not to shoot the missiles, but to make sure the guys are pointed in the right direction or are pulling the trigger. Uh, because friends of mine who have worked with Ukrainian military have varying views about their competence. And we should impose costs. In other words, send Russians back in body bags and kill tanks. Uh, also, we need to harden the Ukrainian communication system against intrusions and jamming, because got, they got Russians running all over them. You need to get control of the skies. You need to knock down Russian drones. You need to get control over the line of control in the skies. You need U.S. radar systems that can track and locate the origins of artillery and missile strikes, and you need to get a weapon that reaches behind the lines to get after the Russians. Now, there's a lot of other things I would do. Uh, the other thing I would like to do, this is obviously on the hard edge, is I am tired of relentless Russian overflights of the Baltic, the Baltic Sea, the Scandinavians, the Danes, the British, and a lot of other places. These overflights are relentless, and they are aggressive. Put a 60-day deadline out, say, you overfly us again without a proper flight path, we're going to shoot you down. Right? And then you do it. You don't make threats like that unless you carry it through. But you give them fair warning that we are not going to be overflown without proper flight plans anymore, and if you do it, we're going to kill you. 
And by the way, if submarines, unknown submarines, enter coastal waters of a NATO state, as they have repeatedly, don't depth charge to make them go away. Depth charge to kill. Uh, in other words, the increase in tensions that the actions that you advocated would inevitably bring yes. is actually an is actually make things safer. Yeah. How do you propose to establish deterrence unless you are prepared to inflict costs? We are not, we have not been willing to inflict serious costs. Therefore, we will continue to be tested and probed until we reestablish deterrence. So we should do that. We've got time for one more. I just wanted to uh, build on that. So this is what you would have done. Does all of this still stand? It's what I would do right now. Right. We, it could still be done. Bear, bear in mind that you have a ceasefire line in Georgia. The Russians have crossed it. Mm -hmm. uh, they have nibbled away and nibbled. No, I do not accept that the ceasefire line is legitimate. They move it overnight. But, but, it is, but it is there, right? The Russians agreed to a ceasefire line, and they have nibbled away and nibbled away past it to the point where they are within about 200 yards of the main east-west highway in Georgia. They have done precisely the same thing in Ukraine. There was a line of control, and they have nibbled and nibbled and nibbled and nibbled. I don't accept that the line of control is legitimate because it was obtained by completely illegitimate means. But the line is there. At a minimum, enforce the already illegitimate lines that currently exist. Right? Don't let them set up new, expanded, and even more illegitimate lines by your failure to enforce the existing illegitimate lines that have been drawn and agreed to by everyone. Well, um, thank you, Ted, for your extremely incisive and well-informed, and I think I can say frank, uh, remarks. Um, I'd certainly like to thank the Foreign Policy Initiative and the Institute of Politics for making this presentation possible, and as a loyal IWP professor, I would like to point out that a couple of the things that made this presentation so excellent were things that IWP tries to give its students. That is, a profound understanding of the, of, of the basis in political philosophy in yeah. the situation that we're talking about, and a profound understanding of, the, of European history, especially in the 20th century. And so, if you come to IWP as a student, you can turn out like the speaker today. <laughs> Although, I didn't go to IWP. But still, I agree entirely with everything you said. Thanks very much for coming. <laughs>